This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Now is something that is very, very applicable to us in these uh, in this time period, and that is Mashiach. But more than Mashiach, the question I think that begs being asked is, why is it that we want Mashiach? Why is it that we need Mashiach? We daven for Mashiach three times daily. We ask Hashem, please, please, please. But I guess the question I think that begs being asked is, we have it pretty good. We have freedom, opportunity, yeshivas, schools. You know, for centuries, for millennium, the Jewish people were oppressed, tortured, murdered. Every form of brutality known to mankind was used freely and wantonly on the Jews. We don't suffer that now. We suffer very little. We have great financial freedom. We have tremendous opportunities. We're able to live a Torah lifestyle. We're able to really bring up our families as we would like to. So the question is, why is it so relevant to us today? Why is it so important? And I think if we better understand how life is supposed to be, I think hopefully we'll understand that piece. And to do that, I would like to start with the sukkim that Yeshaya uses to speak to the Kaisal. In the very opening of his tochacha, in the very opening of his sefer, he begins with a powerful, powerful, you can call it, uh, I don't even have words for it, but uh, let's listen to the words of the Navi. Yoda shor koneu v'chomer eves balav. The shor, the ox knows its master, the chomer, the donkey, eves balav knows the area of its master. Yoda lo yami ami lo yoda. My nation didn't know ami lo isbone, my nation hasn't contemplated what Yeshaya Novi is saying very clearly is, the Kleinstrol, you're lower than an ox, lower than a donkey. The ox knows its master. The donkey knows its stall. It knows where it belongs. It knows where it's supposed to be. The Kleinstrol, you're lower than them. You've sunken lower than animals. And Rashi explains that Yeshaya is not using sort of an allegory, some kind of metaphor. He means it very literally. Says Rashi as follows. What Yeshaya is saying is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is speaking to the Jewish people and says as follows. Hashem says, I gave a nature to the ox. The ox doesn't wake up in the morning and say, you know what, I'm in a bad mood, I'm not going to plow today. The ox obeys its duty, does what it's supposed to do. The Chamar doesn't wake up one morning and say, you know what, it's too heavy, it's too hot, I'm not going to work today. The animal kingdom follows exactly what they're supposed to do. They follow their nature, you the cholesterol, you haven't followed your nature. You haven't followed the innate built-in tendencies I gave you. You're lower than the behemoths, lower than the ox, lower than the shore. And that's how Rashi explains Yeshaya's tochacha. And if you think about this Rashi, I think it's rather perplexing. Because there's a particular reason why an animal obeys the nature that Hashem gave it. It's subservient. It's submissive. If you watch a man get on top of a horse, the man may weigh 150 pounds, the horse may weigh 1,500 pounds. The man says go, and the horse gallops. The man says stop, and the horse stops. The man says go left, the horse goes left. The man says go right, the horse goes right. The horse doesn't have free will. The horse doesn't say, you know what? I'm huge and he's puny, I'm not going to listen. Hashem made it subservient, gave it a nature, gave it a certain type of person, you can't call it personality, but it's Nefesh Bahami is programmed to be extremely submissive. If you're not sure that I'm right, try putting a saddle on a polar bear. You're not going to find the same reaction. But Hashem put into the nature, into the fabric, into the being of certain animals, the ability to be domesticated, and then they are subservient, they're submissive, but they have no choice. But that's not you and I. You and I are made of very, very different sorts of elements. The Chobos of Olives explains that we're made of two vastly competing parts. Two parts that are so diverse, so antithesis one to another, that they are literally from opposite ends of the spectrum. Part of me is an ashama. That part of me only wants to do what's good, what's right, what's proper. That's a part of me that really cares about another Jew's pain. That's a part of me that deeply craves a relationship with my Creator. And there's another part of me. The other part of me is what we call the Nefesh Bahami. All of the animal instincts, all of the cravings, all of the appetites that Hashem put into the animal kingdom to keep it alive... Hashem put into me. And that part doesn't care about you or anyone else. That part is made of completely appetites, drives, inclinations. 
It's not wise. It doesn't see the future. And it can't see anything beyond its immediate needs. So the I whom speaking to you am made of competing parts. And if you're not sure that I'm right, that we are very different than the animal kingdom, I'll give you a very simple example. Ladies, anyone here ever go on the SIT diet? The SIT diet? S-I-T? You don't even know what it is? Okay, here's a SIT diet. And the SIT diet consists of the following. It's, here, I'll tell you, it's a very simple diet. In your left hand, you take a wedge of chocolate cake. In your right hand, you take a Diet Coke. You say the words, I'm so fat, I'm so fat, I'm so fat. You consume the entire wedge of chocolate cake, drink the Diet Coke, and that's a sit diet, self-inflicted torture diet. Okay. <laughs> now, I know none of you ladies have ever been on it, and I know you're not familiar with this, but here's the question. Have you ever been in a situation where you said, I will not eat chocolate cake? And you made a conscious, intelligent decision not to eat chocolate cake. And then a very interesting thing happens. That piece of chocolate cake is put in front of you. And there's a voice within you that says, no. And a voice within you also says, mmm, no, mmm, I won't touch it, mmm, I'm not going near it. Just a little bite, please. And there's a war within you. And if you'd like a little metacognition, if you'd like to actually pay attention to what goes on, there are two distinct voices within you. One says, I won't touch it, and the other one says, <laughs> and if you'd like to watch the human being in action, just watch. Now, we excuse our behaviors, we use all kinds of rationales, all kinds of, you know, I need the calories, and I need to pay attention to the initiary, and I'm all fine. Bottom line is, if you'd like to understand yourself, you'll quickly understand that there are two vastly different parts of me. Part of me is good, proper, holy, and noble. Part of me is the exact opposite. Part of me only wants to do what's right and good. And part of me just wants to fill my stomach, deal with my issues, take care of my needs. And the I am a completely contradictory two elements, each of them vying for competition, vying for primacy. And that's the difference between us and the animal kingdom. So the problem is that how Karashi say these words... Of course we're different than the animal kingdom because Hashem gave a very exact fixed nature to the shore, to the Hamar. Hashem didn't give us a fixed nature. I'm always changing. One or the other side is always gaining primacy. One or the other is always coming to the fore. But I'm in constant contradiction. So of course the shore follows its nature. Of course the donkey follows the submissive nature that Hashem put into it because that's the way Hashem pre-programmed it. But Hashem didn't program us the same. And the question is, how could Yeshaya say that we're lower than the animals? Okay, the clients will veer it off, but it's very difficult to say that we didn't follow our nature. We're lower than the animals in that sense, and it's very hard to understand what Rashi's saying. And I'd like to see if we can understand a little bit better what, in fact, Rashi's sharing with us, and understand what Chazal mean for us. And to do that, I'd like to share with you an interesting observation. What we call life today is not the way Hashem originally created Adam and Chava. Adam and Chava, when they were put into Gan Eden, were in a very, very different existence. All of their needs were taken care of, and Adam had the ability to fashion himself exactly as he saw fit. You see, his very nature was malleable. His very nefesh abahami could be molded, could be shaped. If you want to go back to the chocolate cake mushroom, if Adam Arishan felt that he shouldn't be eating so much, he wouldn't have to fight a fight. He would just say to his nefesh Bahami, you will no longer crave carbohydrates. You'll be satisfied on 1,500 calories a day. And that would have changed the very nefesh, would have changed the appetites, the cravings, the inclinations with him. And because Hashem put him in a state where his neshama was so powerful and the Nefesh Bahami, his animal instincts, were so outside of him that he could literally shape himself into exactly what he was supposed to be. Hashem put him in Gan Eden, and the idea being for him to shape himself, mold himself into what he should be, reach a level of perfection within a very short amount of time, and enjoy that perfection forever. When Adam Arishan sinned, he was Makalkil the Bria. He changed the very essence of him. You see, until that point... If Adam felt he had a tad too much arrogance, he would just rid himself of it. If he felt he had a little bit of anger and he didn't want to have that, he would just stop that instinct. But after ingesting from the Eitzadas, after bringing the Nefesh Abahami to within him, no longer was it simple at all for Adam to change. 
Now if you watch a person who tries to work on his anger, you'll see it's not an easy fit. You watch a person who's trying to cure an addiction or a problem, whether it be even something as simple-sounding as jealousy, or again, arrogance, or laziness, or any of the traits, you'll find it takes a lifetime of work because our nature is no longer plastic. We're no longer able to just easily mold it into what it's supposed to be, but that's not the way Hashem created Adam Rishon. Adam and Chava were in a state where they could just change their essence, they could recognize Hashem, reach a level of perfection, and enjoy that perfection for eternity. And when Adam Rishon ate from the Eitzadas, he changed the very nature. Number one, he no longer could so easily change back, no longer could he easily change his midos, but there was something else that he did that was even more profound. When I was once speaking to a drug counselor, he said something to me that was very eye-opening. This is a fellow who deals with very serious addictions, and he said to me, he won't let any of his patients go to Manhattan. And I asked him, why not? What's wrong with Manhattan? What's wrong with Manhattan? They'll pass the Empire State Building, and who knows what? And I said to him, what's wrong with the Empire State Building? What's the problem? He said, don't you understand? They look at the image and they see a hypodermic needle, you know, the the, the antenna? (laughs) And it's a trigger, and they'll go use heroin. I, I won't let any of my patients pass the Empire State Building. Now, folks, I could pass it a thousand times. I don't think I'd ever imagine a hypodermic needle. But you see, what happens when you become addicted to drugs or behaviors or whatever it may be is, it's not just a desire, it perverts your thinking. It now changes the way you view things. It becomes not just a need, it becomes a totally pervasive way of thinking that shapes you, that molds you. You see, when Admarishan ingested the Eitzadas, he took the Nefesh Bahami and put it within him, it wasn't just that it became more difficult to perfect himself. He now clouded himself to an extent that's hard to imagine. And if you'd like a muscle, I have a muscle that describes our state of existence. You have to appreciate this, and ladies, you may especially appreciate this, if you have a young yeshiva son. Imagine you have a young boy, he's, let's say he's 18 years of age, and this is the first Purim that he decides he's going to get drunk. And then you have Maishi. Maishi, his first time he's drunk on Purim, and you see him, Purim day, in the street. Maishi, what are you doing? I'm playing with the cars. I, Maishi, you're going to get hit by one of the cars. I know. <laughs> Smack, crack. Maishi, you're going to get hit by a car to send you to the hospital. I know. <laughs> hit by the, by the car. Crack my back. Smash. <laughs> Great. Maishi, you're going to go to the hospital. They're going to have to put you back together. I know. They put pins in my back. When I go through the, through the, through the airport, I have to ding, ding, ding through the metal. Now, here's what's going on. You're talking to a fellow... He's clearly conversing with you. He understands that he's going to get hit by the car. He even says, I'll go to the hospital, I'll put pins in my back. What's going on? What's going on is he's drunk. He's drunk with means that his normal shurasaseichel, his intellectual understanding, his perception is foggy. He sees the fact that he'll get hit, but he doesn't recognize the consequences. He doesn't get it. And if you'd like to understand our current state, we are drunk. How is it possible you could go to a shir for weeks and weeks about Lashon Hara, and you'll learn how Chomer the Isser is, how severe, how severe is, until there's one story, ah, I just got it, I got to tell you this. And it isn't even a half of me, it's not even a question, it's going to pop out. How do you explain our behavior? How do you explain the fact that I'll be dominating Shem Esrei, speaking to Hashem right there, literally conversing with HaKadosh Baruch creator of the heavens and the earth, and then my mind is gone? 3,000 miles away, I wake up three steps later, and I go, whoa, where am I? We human beings are in a state of betwixt and between. Sometimes we get it, sometimes we don't. When Odom Arishan ate from the Eitzadas, he changed the very nature of creation. He changed the human being. And the Derech Hashem explains at that point, Hashem had to introduce death. You see, no longer could man reach that state of perfection. No longer could we just be mithakin ourselves, fix ourselves, cure ourselves, and enjoy for eternity being close to Hashem. By putting the Eitzadas within him, he put the Eitzahara within him, clouded his thinking, made himself sort of like that drunk, like a heroin addict. And at that state, the only way that Hashem could possibly allow the human being to reach a state of perfection was by changing the world, and now Hashem had to introduce death. Death is a state where this part, the body, is put in the ground, and I separate. I, with all of my thoughts, with all of my 
understandings, with all of my aspirations, me, the very same one who's speaking to you, the very same person, not some mystical, misty kind of like blackness, but I, with all of my thoughts and consciousness, leave my body. The body's put in the ground, and I go to the Olam HaNeshamas. The Olam HaNeshamas is a sort of a holding place where we stay for a certain amount of time. In that state, we're able to understand things more clearly, and we're able to understand certain things that we couldn't while we were in a, while we were in a physical presence. And then the Derech Hashem explains that there's a third state called Tchiyas HaMesim. Tchiyas is when I'm put back into a body, but a body much more akin to other Mauritians' body. A body that could be molded, that could be shaped, not the biceps or the, the quadriceps, but the very essence of me. And in this state, after Tchiyas HaMesim, I'm able to reach certain understandings, change the essence of me, re-able to perfect myself and enjoy that state for eternity. But explains to Derech Hashem, after Adam sinned, there needed to be three states. This world, Olam HaNeshamos, and Tchiyas This world as we live now, Olam HaNeshamos, when I leave, body's put in the ground. Tchiyas when I'm put back into a body, somewhat like the body I currently occupy, but different in the sense that I could perfect it. However, in that Cheshben, please note, there was this world, Olam HaNeshamos, Tchiyas no mention of Mashiach. Where does Mashiach fit into this continuum? And the Rambam explains that Mashiach is very, very much just like life now. Explains the Rambam, it's so little changed that it's 100% our current existence. When my kids were little, they used to go to a camp and they'd come back and say, Ah, but it's great. When Mashiach comes, lollipops are going to grow on trees. Lollipops don't grow on trees. The Rambam says, Olam Kimin Hago Nohig. The world will still function exactly as the world does now. You'll still go to work. You'll still take a seed, plant it in the ground, and up will come a fruit tree. The world will continue physically almost unchanged. However, explains the Rambam, the key distinction between now and the time of Mashiach is Moleya Aretz Deya As Hashem. The entire world will be filled with knowledge of Hashem. But not in a theoretical, abstract sort of sense. Cognitively, palpably. I know this object is here. I don't have to think about it. If I bang my head against it, I don't suddenly realize it's solid and hard. I know it. Every human being will know that Hashem is right here. Every human being will have a tremendous craving to be close to Hashem because every human being will recognize the glory of Hashem, the majesty of Hashem. And if you'd like to understand what it really means... Just imagine our drunk yeshiva bachar when he's playing in traffic and then the alcohol wears off and he's suddenly, oh my goodness, what was I doing? I was in the street in a high, what was, oh my God, I must die, oh my, oh. That's what it's like. In a flash, every human being suddenly sees Hashem and every human being suddenly wakes up from the slumber and understands life. Obviously, everything changes then. Certainly I don't steal. Number one, Hashem is right there. But number two, Hashem gives out exactly what every human being needs. There's no anxiety. anxiety. If I were walking down the street with the U.S. Marine Corps accompanying me, I wouldn't be filled with fear. Hashem is right here. All of the competition and all of the strange desires that we fill ourselves with now are gone. You see, in an instant, like the sun rising in midday, every human being sees with absolute clarity of thought why Hashem created us and what we're doing here. And more than that, every human being understands the damage of every Avera and the great accomplishments of a mitzvah. If you were to pull out a $100 bill and offer me that $100 bill if I were to drink a cup of bleach, I would not take you up on the offer. Right? Imagine a cup of Clorox. Right? Take it here. Here, 100 bucks. I'll make it $1,000. You couldn't pay me to drink a cup of bleach. Why? Because I understand what it's going to do. Now, Averis, what's the big deal? Come on, you know, it's not a... With an absolute clarity of understanding, every human being will understand that Hashem created us to benefit us. Hashem gave us mitzvahs for our growth, Averis, because they damage us. But it's not like a theoretical, oh, you know, i got to work on it. It's clear and obvious. I don't drink bleach, and when Mashiach comes, I don't do stupid things, because I recognize that it damages me. And I'd like to share with you, there are going to be some interesting... Um, different uh, events I believe that there are going to be a lot of bonfires 
You know what bonfires I'm talking about? I believe that there are going to be a lot, a lot of bonfires when women start burning uh, picture albums from bar mitzvahs, from weddings. What was I think? I was wearing that? Not because it's out of fashion. What was I think? Oh, my goodness. Where's my dignity? My self I can't, I can't believe. You ever notice when you look at a picture, be 100 people, but you spot you right away? I'm telling you, there are going to be bonfires. Whoa! And it's not just women. Don't get me wrong. It's all of us. You see, in a heartbeat, every human being understands life with a totally different perspective. Everything is clear. Everything is obvious. And life changes radically. Physically, very little changes. But that single cognition, Hashem's presence, and every human being being aware of it, wakes us up and we understand life totally differently. Obviously we understand the damage of every Avera and we also understand the accomplishment of a mitzvah. Would you like to know what it's going to be like when Mashiach comes? I have a very simple muscle. Sheldon Adelson was a wealthy individual. He was a rags to riches story. He began as a young boy at 12. He started his first business. He sold that business, started another one. He eventually started the Comdex Computer Show. Eventually, he needed hotels big enough, so he started building hotels. Eventually, he built the Sands Venetian in, in Las Vegas. And in 2003, he was a very, very wealthy individual. However, in 2004, he took the Sands Venetian public. And he went from being a very wealthy individual to the fifth wealthiest man in the world. And Forbes magazine loves to count other people's money, and they love to give you illustrations of people's money. So to give an illustration... From the year 2004, for about a year and a half, if you'd like to know how much money Sheldon Adelson made, so they say all you have to do is imagine that he was making $1 million an hour. $1 million an hour. Now, I thought about that for a little bit. What would life be like if I were earning $1 million an hour? Okay, open the safe at the Dafayomi, close it, a million bucks richer. Whoa! I sit down to a Shabbos meal, <clears throat> bench, $2,000 richer. Go for a little Shabbos shluff. Wake up another $2 million wealthier. Wow! Life is amazing. A million dollars an hour. More precious than gold, more precious than the finest, finest jewels are one word of Torah. Now, those are words to us. They don't have any meaning. But when Mashiach comes and Hashem reveals Himself and every human being understands it, will crave every mitzvah. There'll be a tremendous understanding of the accomplishments, what I do to change myself and change the very world I live in. But it won't be in theory. It'll be right there. And life will be a million dollars an hour, every hour, day after day, week after week. Life will be phenomenal. Physically, very little changes. But that one recognition changes Reality, we awaken from our slumber. No longer are we betwixt and between, so pulled one way and the other. We see things with absolute clarity, and life itself is beautiful. One more step. The Chsam Sofer, in the introduction to your idea, says that people sometimes ask questions. When a young person dies, why? He was good, very good, sometimes maybe even much better than his peers. Why is it? And says Aksam Sofa, people often ask questions like that. And says Aksam Sofa, they're foolish and they don't understand life. Explains Aksam Sofa that it doesn't take that long for a human being to perfect himself. He says, if you see a tzaddik who's 50, 60, 70 years old, you should ask a question. The question is, what's he still doing here? He should have long ago reached his level of perfection. He should have been done his job here. It explains Aksam Sofa, if you see a tzaddik who's 50, 60, 70, know and understand he's not here for himself any longer. He's here for his family, for his Talmudim, for his nation, but he's already reached his level of perfection. It explains Aksam Sofa, it doesn't take that long. If a person listens to that voice inside, within me is an ashama that's pre-programmed to do everything that's right, that's good, that's proper. Says the thumbs over, if I would listen to that voice from the time I came to Das and I would just pay attention to it, I would grow and grow, and within a short amount of time, I'd reach perfection and I would be done my job here. The problem we face is that we take one step forward and two steps back. Two steps forward and three steps back. Sometimes we listen to the Nishama, sometimes we don't. We go this way, we go that way. We spend so much time spinning our wheels that it takes 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years. But if a person were to just plug in 
listen to that voice inside, he would grow and accomplish, reach level after level after level, and within a short amount of time, reach his level of perfection and be done his job here. It says the Chassam Sofer, don't ask when you see a young person who leaves this earth. It may very well be that they accomplish what they were here for, and you don't have to ask why it is. And I'd like to share with you that I believe that that is exactly the answer to this Rashi. You know what Hashem is saying to the Kaisal? I gave you a nature. The Chamor has a nature. The Shor has a nature. It's obedient to it. Well, so too you have a nature. Within you is an Hashem that aspires to be good, right, and proper. Within you is an Hashem that knows exactly what to do at exactly the right time. That Hashem desires nothing but what's right and good. And if you were to listen to it, you would reach level after level of perfection. The fact that you're where you are now, Yeshaya says to the class, there's only one reason. You disregarded your very nature. Oh, there's a Nefesh Bahami. Yes, there are desires, but it didn't bring you any good anyway. It didn't bring you any lasting pleasure. Why don't you just listen to the nature that Hashem put within you? <clears throat> Why don't you just pay attention to that Neshama? You would have grown level after level. But more than that, you would have grown. It's put into you. It's your very nature. And I think this Rashi shares with us a fundamental yesod. And that is that Hashem predestined each of us for greatness. Hashem put within me a neshama that knows exactly how to lead me. Knows exactly what I should do in every situation. I heard my Rebbe, the Shiva Zatzal, often say, when you don't know what to do, you this way, that way, that way, that way, you ask Shailas, and it's not clear. Would you like to know the answer to every moral dilemma that you'll ever have from now until you leave this earth? All you have to do is say to yourself, what do I think the right thing is? No, no, no. Not what do I want? Not what do I desire? Not what are the consequences? What do I think is the right thing to do? And if you ask yourself, what do I think is the right thing to do? And you listen to that voice inside, when it answers, you'll know exactly what to do. Now let's not make a mistake, it's very important to always be sure apes to ask because and oftentimes it's hard to discern and hard to know, but there'll be many, many situations where you can't ask or there is no answer. Hashem gave you the ability to know exactly what to do. You have a built-in guidance system, a built-in GPS. You just have to ask yourself, what do I think is the right thing to do? And if you listen to that voice right away and you forget the consequences, forget your agenda, forget what you're interested in, but just what do I think is the right thing if you listen to it, you'll do exactly what's right, what's proper and good. And I believe this is so, it is fundamental for life. <clears throat> Understanding that Hashem created us to be great, gave us all the tools, gave us an inner guidance system. All we have to do is listen to it and quite the opposite. If we don't, what we're doing is perverting our very nature. We're ignoring the programming that Hashem put within us. Life is a battle because there's a strong voice on the other side that says, eat the chocolate cake, consume it, go for it. But understanding that I'm pre-programmed with all of the instructions, pre-programmed with a tremendous desire to do what's right, good, and proper, is an important lesson for life. And I think if we took nothing from this chazal other than that, it would be worth our understanding. But I think there's a lot more for us to take from this. And that is the following point. We live in very, very unique times. If you were to ask people living 500 years ago, to look at our life, they would say, I don't believe it. The wealth, the ashiras, the luxuries, the material possessions that you have are beyond description. I love to point out that the king of England was King George during the Revolutionary War period. Do you remember the famous portrait of King George? King George is sitting on the throne wearing his big bulky fur. On top of the big bulky fur is a pelt. On top of a pelt is another pelt. There he is, huge, sitting on top of the throne, King George, King of England. Here's the question. Why is the King of England wearing this big, heavy fur on top of the pelt and on top of another pelt? So the answer is because in Buckingham Palace, it was freezing cold. The portrait was painted in the winter. How do you heat the palace? Well, down over there was a fireplace. Radiant heat is good, you know, it warms the king's front, but the king's back is cold, so he to turn around. Now his back is warm. and So the king with the crown jewels could not heat Buckingham Palace. He walked down smelly, dark hallways at night. The king of England got into a bed filled with 48 inches of duck feathers. You ever get into a bed of duck feathers? 
your back just goes, and there's no chiropractic to put you back into shape in the morning. Do you know what the king of England rode in? The royal coach, pulled by 12 white steeds. Well, you know, a little secret. It sounds grand and glorious, but the wheels of the royal coach were made of wood, and the streets were filled with potholes. And when the king had to go in the royal coach to visit the Duke of France, for seven days he was inside the coach going, <laughs> as the royal coach shook up and down. Me? I get into my Toyota Camry. Air comfort ride. I have solved all Sean Bias problems. We have dual controls on the air. My wife likes it hotter or colder, 71, 69. I have stereo sound. I live a life of luxury that kings of yesteryear could not imagine or envision. I wear clothing made of material that didn't exist back then. Clothing in the 1500s and the 1700s was scratchy and itchy. And even if you were the king and the stuff was made of silk, it was mighty uncomfortable. Why? Because as you might not know, there was a known medical fact in England in the Middle Ages that taking a bath in the wintertime was bad for your health. So the average British citizen did not bathe from about October till about March. With bed bugs and lice and the average person in England by the time he was in his mid-thirties had lost most of his teeth. Because there's no dentist and no little, you know, no fluoride in the water. We live in such a vastly different world that if you ask somebody from that world to come to our life, they wouldn't know what to say. If you took a pilgrim. Pilgrims worked from morning to night for subsistence. They had to work long, long hours to somehow plant enough hay to put thatch on the roof. They had to somehow, luckily, if they were able to fill some of the holes so that the winter air didn't blow through. They slept on wood floors. They ate bare amounts that they could. Their skin cracked open in the winter and there was no Jurgen's uh, intensive care to put them back together again. Life 500 years ago was very harsh and very bitter. We don't suffer that way anymore. Material possessions, luxuries, opulence, wealth, and more than that, freedom. We have the freedom to live exactly as we wish. There's no anti-Semitism that affects our world in a direct way. There are no marauders, no black plague. If I decide I want to be a lawyer, a doctor, an Indian chief, it's all free. The guilds are gone. I can live the life exactly that I would like to lead in the course of history. There was never this level of luxury, abundance, and freedom that mankind enjoys. Zel umazet, there's always a balance. And I believe that there is a very fine balance that Hashem put into this world. Because while it's true that in terms of material possessions and luxuries, mankind has never had it better in terms of psychological problems and emotional discomforts and distress, mankind has never had it as bad as now. There is now... 10 times as much reported cases of depression as there were even 30 years ago when it was already known and really studied. But it's not just that. And I told my daughters long ago, if you want to support Ancolo, go into the mental health field. Become a therapist, psychologist, psychologist. It doesn't matter. Whatever you do, you have an unending stream of people because there are so many people who are unhappy, fundamentally, deeply dissatisfied, fundamentally suffering, And while it's true that in the course of history there has never been as much material possession, luxuries, and opulence, it's also true that there's never been as much psychological and emotional suffering as we live through today. Just as an illustration, I did a... I I didn't do it this time. Last time when I did the seminary tour, I chose to speak about life settings. Life settings are the shmooze that I say that Hashem gives each person a different life setting. Some people wealth, some people poverty, some people health, some people not. Because all of it is not relevant. We're but actors on a stage. Each of us is given a different script. At the end of our days, they ask us one question. What did you do with what was given you? Okay, I think it's a very important schmooze, very fundamental. So about two, three years ago, when I did the Yeshiva seminary tour, I did that for a number of different groups. And I was in one seminary, and I said that schmooze, and after 45 minutes... A young woman raised her hand and said, Rabbi, I hear what you're saying. That Hashem gives different people different life settings. And I understand that intellectually, but how can I apply that to my life when I'm in such pain? Now, this wasn't the time to deal with it, so I sort of tried to skirt the issue and go on to the next question. Next young woman raised her hand and said, Rabbi, I hear what you're saying, but how could I deal with that when I'm in such pain? 
And young woman after young woman had the same question. But here's the point. These are all fine, healthy girls, grew up in the life of luxury that we live. Somebody paid the $20,000 for their seminary. They weren't sleeping on the park benches. Yet there were so many people there in that room who were so unhappy. And I, I just felt I couldn't address the issue. You know what I felt like? If you could imagine the following. Imagine it's 1946. And imagine that I'm speaking to a group of concentration camp survivors. And I have to give them chizah. Come on, we have to rebuild. We have to put the past behind. I'd understand their incapability of even relating to what I'm saying. But that's what it felt like. But I wasn't talking to war survivors. I was not talking to people who grew up in the height of depression or pain. And yet I was. I spoke at a camp not long ago. And a young woman, a, very, a young girl, very, very attractive, very nice young girl, comes over and asks me a question. Where in the Torah, where in the Torah does it say that it's forbidden to cut? To cut. Cut. So if you don't know what that means, I'll explain to you as it was explained to me. When you're in such emotional pain, and you're in such distress, by cutting... It distracts you, you know, the sensory system can't process two senses of pain at the same time. So by cutting, you sort of relieve yourself of your emotional, psychological pain, and it offers you a sense of relief. Well, I'll share with you something interesting. You see this book over here, Stop Surviving, Start Living? You'll see on the top, it's the Kongol Family Edition, sponsored by Jay Kongol. Very generously, and I very much appreciate it. Jay Kongol, for a living, is a plastic surgeon. And I'm very friendly with Jay, and Jay tells me, that very often he's called in to do skin grafts from elbow to wrist because a young woman has done so much destruction to her <clears throat> but from the finest homes, the finest What's going on? Anorexia, bulimia, <clears throat> OCD. There are so many unhappy people, but not just unhappy, fundamentally not functioning. And what's pshat? So I want to give you what I consider part of the answer, but only part of the answer. Viktor Frankl was a Viennese psychiatrist. Viktor Frankl learned that he was Jewish when the Nazis put him on a train bound for Auschwitz. And Viktor, Fra- excuse me, Viktor Frankl survived the war, and he wrote a book. And the book is called Man in Search of Meaning. And the book has two parts to it. The first part is when he describes what it was like being in Auschwitz when he tried to sort of step away, to try to be dispassionate, almost to, to play psychiatrist and analyze what was going on in people's minds and people's sight. And it's a very powerful read, the first half of the book. The second half of the book is a description of what it was like for him when he landed on these shores and he opened his practice in the Upper East Side. And very shortly thereafter, his practice was filled. He had been a world-famous psychiatrist in Vienna, when he opened his, he put out a shingle very quickly, his people came flocking to him, but he describes that the patients that he was now seeing had symptoms that he never recognized, never seen before. He says in decades of practice in Europe, he had never seen this pathology. And he describes what would happen. A woman would come in and would say, what can I do for you? Well, doc, I'm depressed. I'm sorry to hear that. Is it your marriage? No. Your kids? No. Your career? No. So what is it? Why are you depressed? I don't know, Doc, that's why I'm here. A man would come in middle age, and he would say to him, what can I do for you? Well, Doc, I'm depressed. Is it your job? No. Your marriage? No. Your bridge game? No. Why are you depressed? I don't know, Doc, that's why I'm here. Patient after patient would come in without an attributable cause. An attributable cause means a reason for a person to be depressed. If a woman was married for 35 years and she suddenly loses her husband, that's a major shock in life. And that takes a while to get over, and we understand why a woman has to go through an awful lot, and that might be a reason, it's certainly an attributable cause. If you have a genetic predisposition, a gift from your parents, and that is also an attributable cause. Science now shares with us that of the tens of millions of cases of reported clinical depression in this country every year, only 16% have an attributable cause. The rest have no reason. And what Viktor Frankl picked up on now decades ago was this phenomenon. And he writes as follows. The reason why these people were depressed was because they had no purpose in existence. They had no reason to be here. Oh, yeah, I'm making a lot of money. My name is famous. 
But you wake up at 35 or 45 and you say, ugh, there's a vacuum. And it doesn't matter what you pursue. If it's not real, if it's not genuine, if it doesn't live well beyond and extend far beyond you, you're going to be depressed, you're going to be empty. And Viktor Frankl, from a secular psychiatric vantage point, says, man without meaning, man without purpose, should be depressed, will be depressed. And it happens to be that he got it 100% right. You see, Hashem did not take us from under the Kisya Kovod, put us into this world for whatever. You know, whatever. Hang out a little bit, have a kid, get married, whatever. You know, make some money, spend some money, then we die. Hashem put every human being on this planet to grow, to accomplish, to change the essence of me, to reach greatness. When you use a tool as it was given to you, the tool functions very well. But if you take a blade and you try to open up a, try to pry open a window with it, it dulls the blade and it does a terrible job. When a human being was created for growth, for accomplishments, and you use your life for anything but that, there's an emptiness inside, there's a vacuum inside. And if you would like to understand the American culture today, all you have to do is look at a single ad for teenagers' clothing. Watch an ad for a guy wearing jeans or a girl, whatever it is, and watch the face of the model. You ever notice the faces? It goes like this. Why is it that they don't smile? Why are they smiling? Everyone's prettier. Everyone's more attractive when you smile. Why aren't they smiling? Would you like them to answer? All you have to do is walk down Fifth Avenue against the traffic. Fifth Avenue, when they're coming this way, you know, during lunch hour, and you see the swarm of humanity, find you human being walking down the street. You won't find it. You know why? And the reason why they put kids in very ugly poses is because they're trying to sell jeans. And if I'm a kid and I want to buy jeans, I'm only going to buy from someone I can relate to. Well, my friends ain't smiling. And people I look up to ain't smiling. And if that model is going to have a smile, and, ugh, who looks at my jeans like that? Be like that dork? Dork guy who's like, ugh. That's not part of my culture. And if you think I'm just making this stuff up, it isn't true. It isn't true, and you don't have to go very far to find misery, unrest, unhappiness in our generation. And why do I share that with you? Because if you'd like to know, what do we need Mashiach for? We've got it pretty good. Freedom, opportunity. I haven't been, honestly, I've not been called a dirty Jew in at least 35 years. I don't remember the time I got into a fistfight. You Jew! I don't remember it. So if you're worried about ISIS and you're, eh, don't worry about that. There's a much bigger reason. Look at your family, look at your friends, find me people who are genuinely happy. And for any human being you find who's genuinely happy, I guarantee you'll find a dozen who are miserable and unsatisfied, and tremendous amount of pain, tremendous amount of issues going on. And it could be from the finest families, the greatest upbringing, but there's an inner unrest. And if you want to know why we should daven and daven and daven, it's just because Hashem, it's enough. It's just way too much. It's true. We have it better than ever in the course of history in terms of materialism. But in terms of genuine happiness, accomplishments growing, it's, there's a void, there's an absence, and all you have to do is look around and Rahman al-San, if you ever need a reason to daven for Mashiach, just talk to teenagers. Any stage in life has issues. Being a teenager is one that has... Tons. I mean, it's just, you know, when you're a little kid, you're your mother's child. That's how you identify. When you're an adult, you have your fully formed understanding. It's those teenage years when you're transitioning, when you're finding yourself, when you're discovering yourself. And when you wake up in the 21st century to find yourself, Hashem Yerachem, it's an extraordinarily confusing time we live in. And you have to imagine what it's like. I don't say it anymore to my kids because it's not nice, but I used to say to them regularly, thank God I wasn't born in your generation. Because they live with things today that are beyond description. And if you say, well, come on, I'm not affected by it. Because if you're an adult and you're already formed and you already have a sense of sobriety and understanding of how life's supposed to be, you're not so influenced. You know, I love it when the 60-year-old lady saying, why do the girls dress so unsneezed well, lady, when you were 20, you were no tzatzkal either then, lady. With all due respect, don't tell me now with your wisdom how you look back and have such a sense. Tell me what it's like when you're 13 years of age and you forget the Supreme Court ruling. Forget that. It's everything. It's, there's such unbalance, such unhealthiness. 
Find me a wholesome, happy kid today. And if you want to know why we need Mashiach, I think there's a very obvious and real reason. It's because of the suffering, the pain, the amount of unhappiness that we all suffer from. And if you're personally a happy Baruch Hashem, but I guarantee if you're married or if you have kids, if you have people you know, and I deal with people all the time, and you can ask my wife, and my wife used to say to my kids, if you knew half of the issues that Abba deals with, your hair would stand on the end. My wife doesn't know a quarter of the issues that I deal with. And if you would just hear people who have the best lives, everything is perfect. It's the perfect life. And then they call up and you hear what's really going on. And you say, wow, that's strange. And my friends, I want to share with you, we live in strange times. Strange. What goes on today is not just normal, fair, you know, it's okay. America in the 1950s was happy days. Bob and Sally got married, moved into the suburbs, had 1.5 kids and a dog, and everything was good. But that's not life in America today. That's not life in Western culture. And if you think, well, that's the Goyim outside of us, no one understands that your children are brought up in that culture. And your children identify with it, your children relate to it, and if you think it doesn't affect them, I'd like to share with you, you're very, very mistaken. It affects all of us, and it shapes us, it molds us, and it forms our understanding. And if you'd like to understand why we need Mashiach, it's because that one reason. In a flash, everything changes. Physically, nothing changes. But in a flash, every human being sees Hashem right there. Every human being understands the accomplishment that a human is capable of. Every human being understands why I'm here. Every human being greatly, greatly craves a relationship with Hashem and greatly craves growing and accomplishing and every human being has unbridled happiness and for very selfish reasons for very personal reasons we should beg Hashem, beseech Hashem, implore please, please end it, it's long enough okay, we're not suffering immediately now it's true I haven't bled because I'm a Jew in the past week it's true that right now we're doing well physically but the pain, the suffering, the emotional distress is beyond description, and I believe that's a very real reason to daven for Mashiach. I think what Yeshai and Novi sharing with us is a profound understanding. Hashem says to the Kaisrol, you sunk less than the ox and lower than the donkey. Why? I gave them a nature. You, I also gave a nature. How did you not listen? And when Adam Arishan was created, he was created in a very different form than you and I now. Adam Arishan was put into Gan his neshama was malleable, he could shape it, he could mold it. When he ingested from the eight Sadas, he changed two things. Number one, he no longer could so easily shape his essence. But number two, he made himself drunk. When Mashiach comes to a certain level, that drunkenness goes away. And to a certain level, that drunkenness passes, and no longer are we like Moshe, that drunk yeshiva, oh boy, I'm playing with traffic. We understand the gravity of our actions. We understand what we're involved in. And instantly everything changes. But there's not that much we can do now to change it. Oh yeah, we can grow and accomplish. And the more that a person puts the Torah as a center and grows and serves the Shem properly, the happier he'll be and the more aligned with his purpose he'll be. And it's true that to a large extent he'll live a happier lifestyle. But at the end of the day, it's not just us, it's our family, it's our community, and it's well, well beyond us. We live in very strange times, and it's so out there, and so pervasive, that you and I aren't going to change it. It's not one book, and it's not one Musa Shmuz, and it's not even my sitting down to Musa Seder every day. It'll help me, it'll change me, but I'm not curing the generation that way. And understanding that the only cure now is for Shem to bring Mashiach, I think is a very, very important understanding. And I want to close with one last step. The Chavetz Chaim says, before you daven so quickly for Mashiach, know that it's not so simple. He explains, when you're at war, and you lead a battle, imagine you're a corporal, and you valiantly fight, you could go from corporal to sergeant in a day. And if you lead your battalion then, as a sergeant, you could go from sergeant to lieutenant in a week. And if you lead your platoon, you could then go to become a captain, become a major, you could, you, could, you could become a general in two years, you could rise in the ranks very, very quickly in a time of war. It explains the Chavetz in a time of peace, it's very different. 
to go from corporal to sergeant requires tests and studying and years and years and years. And after three years, you might make it to sergeant. And if you take more tests and study more, you might, might, might make it after four years or five years to lieutenant. And if you spend more time, you might make it to captain. And at the end of your career, you might make it to major. But it's very unlikely to get beyond that. Explains the time. It's true that right now we live in torturous times. And it's true that the fight now is fever-pitched. But that's also a tremendous opportunity. Because if a person actually grabs hold of himself now, if a person looks in the mirror and says the words, I'm worth it, if a person is able to say, I'm going to make myself into what Hashem deemed is appropriate and proper, and begins climbing and accomplishing, they raise themselves level after level after level. As much as they're suffering, you should know, we have tremendous people coming out of our yeshivas. Oh, there are a lot of suffering. There are a lot of people who fall apart. But there are a lot of girls who come out of Beishakov, tremendous, tremendous people. <clears throat> a lot of guys who make it in learning. A lot of Balabatim who become tremendous individuals. And when Mashiach has great times, growing is very different. Everyone desires to be close to Hashem. Everyone wants to accomplish. The star is much less. The growth is much less, much less significant in a sense. It's much more gradual. And while it's true that we should daven for Mashiach, you also have to know that these times are also tremendous opportunities because now we can grow and accomplish and reach levels that we'll never be able to reach again. Hashem grant us that this be the last Tisha B'Av. Before I end, I just want to again thank the Martins and thank Mrs. Shukes for setting us up. I also want to mention one thing. This is a shmooz. We were just listening to the shmooz. All the shmooz are available on the shmooz.com. Don't go on the internet. If you do, go to the shmooz.com. Don't get a smartphone. Don't do it. Don't do it. It's not smart. It's dumb. If you do, you get the Shmooz app. It's available for the iPhone and the Android. Uh, the only thing you have to remember is that it's spelled funny. It's spelled T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com. They have some magnets here. In case you don't remember, you can put one on your, far, on your, your car. And you remember, it's spelled T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com. You could go download all the Shmoozim, and it's on the app. We also have some books here. The book's available. There's $10 a piece. Stop Surviving, Start Living is a... Is a what? It's a, how much is it? $10. Oh, $10 and the two copies together, you buy that and finding a soulmate are $15. There are also some car magnets and some CDs. Thank you for listening, ladies. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.